Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and today is June 30th, 2023. Happy Friday, everybody. And I'm joined today by my bestie. I have senior TechCrunch reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hi. I hear Texas is like 6,000 degrees right now. Yes, it's been insanely hot, well over 100 degrees every day for like a week and a half. But I'm excited because it's the end of a quarter. And I feel like, you know, this is a good way to end the year or half year, I guess. Yeah, I'm in awe of how fast the year has gone, partially because I wasn't here for the first two months of it. And then I got back and I was getting up to speed. And then, you know, suddenly we're in the end of June and now it's time for Q3. And I'm not emotionally ready for another earnings dump and venture capital data dump. And it's gone by fast. It has. Yeah. And part of the reason why it has felt like it has gone by quickly is finally things are are happening again. And today's unofficial theme of the show is almost kind of M&A, which is not a topic we've talked about much because there hasn't been much, but that does seem to be changing. Before we dive in, though, quick notes, deals of the week this week are Coastal Adventures and Honey Homes, and then Gusto and Remote. Then we're going to talk about a wave of fintech acquisitions, including Visa buying Pismo, which is very interesting and a large dollar deal. Then we're going to talk about M&A some more with some other very important deals, including what Databricks is up to. And then we're going to wrap with whatever time we have left, looking back at Q2 and talking a little bit about what might be a hot secondaries summer. So it's going to be a killer show. Marianne, though, I want to start with Honey Homes because you and I are both uh, homeowners and therefore we are both home maintainers and therefore we are people who pretend to know how to use a hammer. So how is Honey Homes going to save us from ourselves? <laughs> First of all, I don't pretend. My, my husband's the one that handles all that, I have to admit. But yeah, this this company really seemed to strike a nerve with readers. I, I was impressed with how many commented on what a cool service it seemed to be and something that they would want to use. And I really love writing about companies like this, right? Like we're, they're building something that people actually seem to want and would pay for. So Honey Homes is out to give you handyman on demand. They raised, let's see, a total of $12.1 million in funding Okay, over two rounds, both led by Coastal Ventures. The seed, I believe, was also co-led by Pair VC. And basically, I mean, it's really as simple as it sounds. It's They've built an app. And if you're a homeowner, you could pay either $200 a month or $2,000 a year. And you uh-huh. basically have this handyman at your service. The uniqueness of this model, there's it's twofold, I believe. One is the handymen are actually staff of Honey Homes. They are not contractors. Historically, this has been an industry where people worked as contractors. They didn't have benefits. Honey Homes is saying, hey, we, we want to change that. We want to give some stability here. We want to give consistency to the homeowners. So they're, they're giving these handymen benefits, PTO, pay time off. And that way the the homeowners are getting the same person. That's the goal every month and not some random new individual coming to their home. Which is actually pretty clutch because, you know, our house is old, like several hundred years old. And so we, we have handy people over all the time to help us fix whatever it is that's broken. And it's so much nicer to go, oh, it's person X. And then they know where things are and you right. know they can store drinks in your fridge. But if it's random person, you're like, and while you're here, please don't steal my dog. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that, to have that like consistency, the familiarity and, and comfort. So I think that was, that was kind of interesting. It reminded me of like Redfin at one point hiring its agents as salaried as opposed to keeping them contract in a similar sense. Secondly, I think another thing that's interesting is a lot of other apps that you see in the space tend to be more of like marketplace. Places. Okay, let's pair up a homeowner with a vendor. I think Thumbtack is one. And, you know, yeah. you, you hear things like, okay, well, I'll go there for leads, but 
then they'll end up, the contractor's like, oh man, I have to give Thumbtack a big cut. So let me just work with these people offline. So I'm kind of even wondering how like Thumbtack is still in, in business, but this is not a, it's not a marketplace. It's different. So it, it really struck me as a little more unique than other things I've seen out there. I would definitely use this if it was out in Providence. I know it's starting in parts of the Bay Area and, oh, was it Dallas? Dallas? Yeah. Dallas. Yeah. So exactly. Um, for now, it's only in the suburbs of the San Francisco Bay Area, not the city itself and in and the Dallas area as well. But they're looking to expand over time, which, you know, again, I was I was impressed with the number of people who commented on social media that they were they thought it was a great idea. They'd be interested in using it. Personally, I have to admit, I don't know if I would pay $200 a month for this service just because maybe I'm lucky and my husband's super handy. So, but at the same time, we That's also- cheating. I know, I know. <laughs> I don't have a handy husband. I have a similarly unhandy <laughs> wife. No, no, I'm like, I'm very lucky in that regard. But however, I mean, having said that, you know, he's also time constrained. So we, we do have things pile up sometimes, you know, yeah. we've had like yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff in boxes that need to be installed and I don't want to bug him because he already does so much. So, I mean, I do think it's it's a really great model. I definitely think there's demand for it. I'll be curious to see how it grows over time. Okay. I, I want to clarify one more thing before we move on, because I was trying to find the catch on the website. So prepping for the show today, I went to Honey Homes and I was going through the FAQs, reading the site. And it seems that if I pay this $2,000 a year or $200 a month, is there not an extra fee to have someone coming out and fix the latch on my door? Is that just like entirely no, included? No, no, there's not an extra fee. I mean, as I understood it, that's just included. What I don't think is that you get unlimited visits. Okay. Right. Okay. I don't think it's unlimited. I think it's like maybe two or three times a month that you could get someone to come out and do something for you. It's not like That's, every week, every day, like, Hey, can you come <laughs> fix my league? Or can you do this? Or, can you tie my shoes? Uh, <laughs> that's an amazing deal. And they do have a system by which you can uh, request larger projects and then they'll help you kind of source that. And there are some materials costs you'll cover for yourself at cost. But right. frankly, I mean like, okay, if you want to have your dishwasher fixed and you call like the repair company, it's like 200 bucks to have someone come to your house to look at it. Yeah. I mean, right? honestly, that's so, true. I mean, it, you can just to get people to come out, sometimes they charge you. So if you, when you think of it that way, it can be a very, very good deal. And, and if you can get someone to come out at all, my right. favorite is when you're like, hi, my thing is, has exploded. They're like, excellent. How about June, 2027? And I'm very like, what is true. this? Like, my dentist? So true, especially here in Austin, as as a population kind of exploded, like getting any kind of contractor to do anything is it's like you're begging them to pay yeah. pay them and do work for you. It's crazy. Yes. Yes. Try to get someone to paint your house right now. Good luck. Right. All right. Speaking of the the split between contractors and full-time employees, this division has come up rather recently in some of my coverage talking about a company called Gusto. Way back in the day, it was called Zen Payroll. Now best known Marianne is kind of a company in the space with Rippling and Velocity Global, essentially helping people hire people domestically and run payroll benefits, that sort of thing. It's become a pretty big business. And what's really kind of caught my eye is they've expanded recently with another company that we know called Remote, which helps companies hire internationally. And so what Gusto and Remote are doing, and the reason why this is my deal of the week is I think it's actually kind of a cool business opportunity, is that Remote is now going to work inside of Gusto to let Gusto customers, the businesses, hire internationally. And I think given the rise of hybrid work and so forth, it's going to be a big deal. And previously on Gusto, you could hire international contractors, but not international full-time staff. And so new deal out this week, obviously we don't have data on how it's performing, but to me, it seemed kind of like a, a pretty obvious tie-up and uh, they wouldn't tell me details of the revenue split, but I'm sure they 
dickered about that for a while, but I like it. I think it's a cool way to see two unicorns kind of like see a blind spot and then come together to solve two at once. I agree. I think it was a great move on the part of both companies. It feels like it's, it would only benefit the two of them and people using it. The revenue share agreement makes sense. I, it makes you wonder like why there are not more of these sort of partnerships in general out there. It feels like instead of all these companies working so isolated or trying to compete with everyone else, like why not? work collaboratively more and it can make you make you much more powerful. What is there's that saying what one plus one equals I don't know. Three? Five. Yeah. I don't know what it, you know what I'm trying to say, but like it seems to make a lot of sense. I was also very impressed with how much revenue Gusto has generated in its most recent fiscal year. You yes. wrote that it was more than five hundred million dollars. Yes. And Gusto is not a company that likes to share numbers. So I want to, I there's someone who's going to listen to this who helped me squeeze that number out of them like blood from a stone. And uh, thank you to her. I just want to say though that, yeah, $500 million more than that in their last fiscal year, which closed at the end of April. So their fiscal calendar is, I mean, all fiscal calendars are annoying. There's this, I would say fractionally more annoying, but there is some good reasons for why a payroll based company, just thinking out loud, might want to have their year end around tax season just because yeah. it turns out taxes are a big deal. Right. So anyways, the $500 million mark is very interesting because we know that Rippling is doing nine figures of revenue. We know that Velocity Global is doing over $200 million in revenue. And we know that Remote is doing lots. And then we also know that Deal, which also helps people hire internationally, is I think above $300 million in ARR now. So this collection of companies, unicorns each, is doing so much business. And I just can't wait until they all go public and we get to see the, the hard numbers. But at least we got this from Gusto. Yeah, I'm impressed. Kudos to you for that. And definitely a space to keep watching. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and then one, one last thing. You know that I have a soft spot for APIs just in general because I think they're cool. Gusto ha had worked back in the day to kind of like make its software APIs with the front end attached and then remote done kind of a similar thing. And so it's cool to see like that work they did a couple of years ago make for this tie to be pretty easy because there's going to be like a remote button inside of Gusto. Nice. And because it's all like APIs, it can kind of just like, this is my technical speak, link up between the two. It's cool. Very cool. I agree. All right. We have to take a very quick break. But when we come back, FinTech M&A and all things dollars and cents. We can't have you on the show, Marianne, of course, without talking about fintech and Brex is back. And I, I got to ask, <laughs> I, I, I know this is your story to introduce, but like, are they back to doing SMBs? What's going on? I know. Okay. Yeah. First of all, it was a very busy week in fintech and it was, it was great for me because to be honest with you, it has, it's been a little bit slow to be honest in terms of like big juicy news. So it was fun. First up though, Brex. Okay. So last summer, almost a year ago, exactly, Brex made headlines for its, hey, we're not going to work with SMBs anymore. And everybody kind of freaked out. Now yes. they had to kind of backtrack a little bit and explain what they meant by that because a lot of startups were flipping out. And basically what they were saying was, okay, no, we're, we're still going to work with startups, but only if you've raised money right. or you're funded. So so not the SMB who runs like a florist down the street, but if you're a small business startup that raises venture capital, building tech, they still wanted your business. Right, right. However, okay. that at that same time, they were really making this big push into software and the enterprise, you know, announced DoorDash as a customer and like they really made a big deal out of it, right? We're going after the larger customers. We're going after larger customers and, you know, the smaller ones just, you know, we couldn't really meet all their their needs in the way that, that they needed. But then- Silicon Valley Bank imploded, right, in March. And I think that changed everything. 
So Brex, in fact, was a bidder for their, I think it was early stage and growth portfolios, obviously didn't, didn't get them. But they saw an influx of customers, right? And from the startup space, it was like Brex, Arc, Mercury, that, that started seeing a lot of startups come to them for, for services and demand. And I think in the first week after that implosion, that's the only numbers that Brex would give me in terms of what they saw. On the inbound demand side, essentially, these are companies that SVB goes kapoof. And then the first week people showed up in, uh, what were the numbers? Yeah, they said that in that first week that it opened 4,000 new accounts and received $2 billion in deposits. So that's a lot. of that, That's a lot, right? That's a lot of deposits in a week. And that's just from that customer base. And don't forget, everybody, cash now has actual value because it generates money. It generates yield. Right. So in the old days, $2 billion in additional AUM would be like four cents in interest. Now it's an actual check. But they've hired someone from SVB. Right. So they hired Jason Mock, who actually, well, more recently, he was an operating partner at Andreessen Horowitz. But prior to that, he spent over 16 years at Silicon Valley Bank. And now he's their new head of startup. So this reflects their kind of renewed focus on the startup community. They're obviously going all in and trying to serve startups. They're doing things like having brand ambassadors, Brex ambassadors in different markets like Boston, New York, San Francisco. They want to go all in. They want to be there for founders and startups is, is how Jason put it. So I know we need to talk about Visa and Pismo in a second, but like so they were a startup-focused corporate card company originally. They expanded into a broader corporate spend platform, went after the enterprise, deprioritized their SMB business while keeping a fig leaf out for startups. Now SVB dies, more young companies come to them. Are they still only taking venture-backed companies or do they have a slightly wider aperture now when it comes to less large accounts, which is terrible grammar, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think they're still focused on funded companies. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't think they've gone back to that mom and pop florist type. They were talking about startups that have raised capital of some kind. Which is odd because who has a higher gross margin than a florist? Every time I go to buy flowers for anybody, it's, I'm, I'm like, oh Lord, I'll take out a second mortgage for this fucking bouquet. <laughs> Anyways, speaking about large dollar purchases for interesting assets that are not floral, why is Visa dropping a billion dollars on a Brazilian fintech company? Yeah, this was a big deal. Okay, first of all, it was not a shock. It's been rumored to be happening for a couple of months now. We all knew that something like this was coming. The rumors were that it was like Visa, MasterCard. Who? Who's going to buy Pismo? Somebody's going to buy Pismo. Pismo is a Sao Paulo-based payments infrastructure startup, in case you never heard of it. Founded about seven years ago. Anyway, it turned out Visa was the winner. I spoke to Ethan Choi at Excel. Excel was one of the company's investors. The startup raised, I think, $118 million it was back Ooh. in 2021. Right. Interestingly, besides Excel, Amazon and SoftBank co-led that round. It, I remember at the time being struck by the fact that Amazon was involved because like, that's not typical. No, I mean, of, of all the major corporations out there, I think Amazon's the least active CVC amongst big tech companies. But the SoftBank thing actually hits me as a, even more of a shock. Marianne Azevedo, are you telling me that SoftBank had a hit? This is like the first in a very long time, because I feel like all we've done is talk about all the failures it's, right. it's had out of its portfolio. So yes. Ladies and gentlemen, SoftBank. <laughs> Besides being a win for SoftBank, it was it's definitely a win for the Latin American community. I mean, it's probably, if not the biggest, one of the biggest fintech M&A deals to happen this year. Visa could have acquired payment infrastructure company based out of anywhere, including the US. They went after Pismo. That's a big deal. 
By the way, I thought the drink was the Pismo Sour. Turns out it's the Pisco Sour. So my entire joke that I was bubbling up while you were talking has just <laughs> fallen entirely flat. So much for my egg white topping. So Pismo does essentially banking as a service, right? As far as I can tell. Right, exactly. And its its growth has, has really been impressive. First of all, they what they describe themselves as a, they have a cloud native issuer processing core banking platform. Basically, it's trying to give banks, fintechs, other financial institutions, the ability to do things like launch cards, payments, digital banking, digital wallets, marketplaces, that kind of thing. The, the growth they've seen is like, wow. This year, they told me the startup processed almost 50, five, zero billion API calls, had 40 billion in transaction volumes annually, powered almost 80 million accounts. Okay, here's the context. At the beginning of 2021, they were doing less than 1 billion per month in transaction volume, which would be what, 12 billion a year? Yep. That's up to 40 so billion. It's two, two and a half X. Right. And then when they Not bad. ended 2020 with fewer than 10 million accounts total, now it's up to almost 80. So that's that's some major growth. Absolutely. I mean, like, look, I know everyone's tired about hearing equity say Latin America and fintech in the same sentence, but this is why we keep doing it, right? I mean, like there's massive demand. And frankly, I think what, what Pismo has built it has shown deep market resonance. And if you're a visa, right, and you want to make sure that you don't lose your perch, if you will, atop the kind of global card payments game, well, this seems like a pretty good deal. And for a billion dollars at visa size, that's just not that much money. So they kind of get a crown jewel for a fraction of their market cap that is so small, it's almost de minimis. So I, yeah, right. I dig it. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think for Visa, it's nothing but a good deal. Basically, I think as Ethan put it, they want to get closer to the banks and financial institutions that they work with. They want yeah. to be able to provide them with these like core banking and card issuing services. So this is a way to do it. It's just a big deal all around. All right, let's squeeze in one more fintech M&A before we get on to some AI related deals. So there's a company called Cohere and there's a company called Cohere.io. And we're talking about the latter one in this case. Correct. Yeah. So Ramp, which is a Brex competitor, they also do spend management or what they describe as finance automation. They made their second. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, going back to your point about, about Pismo being cloud native, that just means online. TechCrunch is a cloud native publication. I mean, my God, the buzzwords. All right, the sorry, jargon, right. Anyway, yes. So Ramp made its second acquisition this week. It's only, I was surprised that it's only acquired two companies so far and over its lifetime, but they acquired Cohere.io. It's a startup that's built this AI powered customer support tool founded about three years ago. We covered their seed raise back in, I think, 2021. It was $3.1 million. The round ended up closing at 3.5. It was led by Initialized Capital. They were also backed by Y Combinator and others, including a bunch of angels. But basically, Ramp is just like, hey, uh, here's, wait, wait, before I get into this, there's some interesting background. So one of the okay. co-founders of Cohere.io was actually an employee of Ramp before ah. he started this company, before he left to start this company. And Ramp was a customer of Cohere.io's and its co-founders, Eric Gleiman and Kareem Ataya, I'm not sure if I butchered his name, apologies if so, were investors in the company too, prior to this still taking place. Look, we talk a lot about venture investment, but apparently this is an example of venture incestment. Oh my God. 
sorry. I, I would apologize for that, but I'm not. I'm actually not sorry. I was very proud of that when I came up with it. <laughs> you should be. I'm sorry. That was good. If, if that doesn't get bleeped out, 10 points to Teresa, our producer. All right. Sorry, Mary. No, no, no. But it's not the first time. I mean, Stripe did a similar thing this year when it bought OK. One of its co-founders was also an investor in OK before it, it got acquired by Stripe. So maybe this is becoming like a, a thing. But anyway, Eric said that they were just really impressed with the technical sophistication of Cohere.io. Apparently, what, what they claim to be its differentiator is being able to really answer questions that, that are difficult and just not super simple and basic through its AI. Yeah, I was going to say the backing point of this is that Cohere.io was using AI technologies, which makes the acquisition even less surprising than its family ties to the company that now owns it. Everything AI right now is essentially scorching hot. Right. They say they've been using generative AI and LLMs, which large language models, even before chat GBT, of course, that's you know what they're saying, and using it to extract companies' historical customer support data and apply it to similar questions in the future. So specifically here, they said that stood out from other chatbots because it wasn't just simpler use cases. Okay. It was like very infrequent questions or, or things like that, that that's what stood out to them. So apparently their, their technology was more sophisticated. Now Ramp's got even more AI folded into its offerings. I don't know what they paid for the company, but interesting deal all around. It's also a great way to give your friends money. Just they'll come up with an idea, tell them to go build it next door, give them money to build it, and then use your company to buy it. Ta-da, rich friends. All right, speaking about LLMs, TechCrunch, by the way, is written by an LLM, a lethargic literary mastication process. <laughs> um, we're talking about Databricks and Mosaic ML. This was my my real deal of the week, if you will, because I thought it was fascinating. So Databricks, we talked about on the show a bunch. They are a, quote, quote, data lake house company. And if you don't know what that means, well, I'm going to butcher this explanation. But in a data lake, you put all of your crap. It's a big pool of unstructured data. In a data warehouse, you have slightly more structured data where you can run ML queries and so forth. A data lake house smushes the two together. Now, Databricks says, this is the way to go. Snowflake says, it's not as good as our method. So pick your poison. But what matters is Databricks is a company that has a lot of customer data running through its systems. So it bought Mosaic ML which is in the generative AI space for $1.3 billion. And Marianne, I think the company was worth like $222 million before. So a huge up valuation on this deal. Huge, huge. But another thing that stood out to me, and I can't help but compare, I just have to, okay? So Mosaic ML had raised about $64 million in funding, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So last week we wrote about Robinhood buying a credit card startup, X1, for $95 million. X1 had raised about $62 million in funding, which is almost equal to what Mosaic ML had raised. Yet the purchase prices for the two companies are vastly different. Vastly different. For two reasons. One is one gets to have AI on their t-shirts and the other one has to say that they did corporate cards, if I recall correctly. One category hotter than the other. And the other thing is, from what I've heard, Mosaic ML's revenue growth was very impressive. So certainly in terms of like an ARR multiple, the Mosaic ML deal is very expensive. But if you're Databricks and you want to fill a, a kind of gap in your LLM stack, this makes sense. So to explain to people why I'm not mocking a company for spending more than an Instagram on a little company, here's what the Databricks CEO told me. So LLMs have a number of kind of steps to them. There's the model itself, then there's pre-training, then there's fine-tuning, and then there's a user interface component, right? So the part that Databricks felt that they were weakest on was the pre-training 
portion of that. And so Mosaic ML, also an open source founded company, also has made some of its own models, brings to Databricks this pre-training technology. So now if you are a DB customer, you can have a model, you can pre-train, they already had fine tuning and they have data and governance built in. So it's kind of mm-hmm. a, a LLM full stack. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing from Snowflake as well. And so people really want to have this soup to nuts right. or seed to spac, whatever, pick your, pick your joke, method of approaching this. So I, I get it for 1.3. Also, because frankly, they had a lot of money. Right. For Databricks, it's not like a huge amount of cash. And hopefully the value they can gain from it will definitely make it worth it for them. Yeah. Also, I'm just going to tease this. We haven't actually recorded this yet, but by the time you hear this, I think I will be recording it. We're going to bring back on the show one of our founding co-hosts, Matthew Lindley who is now running his own publication that focuses on AI to riff on all things big tech, LLM, uh, progress. And it's going to be an absolute blast. Basically, I'm bringing him back just so I can pick his brain for 30 minutes and learn as much as I can. So look for that down the road. Moving on, Marianne, another big deal was the IBM Aptio deal. And I have to ask, when you think about hybrid data management, are you like a 10 out of 10 excited or a 9 out of 10 excited? Oh, Alex, I mean... (laughs) Okay. What do you like less? Hybrid data management or NFTs? Oh God. I would have to say NFTs for sure. But I mean, yeah, I, I can't say that I'm super knowledgeable about, about this space. Right. So I, I the, my excitement level is probably not quite as great as yours. Okay. Well, I'll try to big it up for everyone out there. So IBM, woo! Aptio, woo! Aptio was bought by Vista Equity Partners, a private equity shop back in 2018 for just under $2 billion, now selling to IBM for 4.6. And essentially, not everything's going to be run in the cloud. Not everything can be cloud native. And so some companies do keep things on-prem, and then you end up with data stretched between the cloud and on-prem. And it's boring, but it's very important. Managing where data is and how it's governed and organized and stuff is a big deal. And Aptio has apparently continued to grow under the tutelage of its private equity owners, let's say. And so it's kind of cool to see Aptio, which also bought stuff along the way, now get kind of disgorged into IBM. Of course, a company that's looking to find new areas of growth in its kind of long running cloud attempts. So a deal that I don't think is super fun for us to chat on, but $4.6 billion, another big deal announced this week, just keeping the M&A theme alive. For sure. It's one of those kind of boring, but very important spaces. But something else that struck me, and, and it was in the article as well, Vista Equity Partners made, what, two and a half billion dollars off of this. So that gives them even more cash to do more investing too. So I think that's kind of a big deal for the for the whole like startup community as well. I want to tweak that. What it does is show that not all the money that went into private equity in the last five years was pissed away. Exactly. It's a related point to what you're saying. It's a corollary, but I think there's probably some deals that haven't worked out as well. So it's good to have a big name, big dollar deal. It gives confidence. Kind of like Cava's IPO the other Mm -hmm. other week, that Mm -hmm. Mediterranean fast casual place that ruined your favorite chocolate cake. That that IPO did so well, pricing above range, doubling in valuation sense, that it kind of shook up its its larger IPO category. I think deals like this Aptio IBM thing show that there is a lot of money out there for big deals. And that might engender more M&A by itself. Exactly. Very, very true. Okay, I'm gonna just I'm gonna condense this so we can talk about Web3 for a minute, but there's also ThoughtSpot buying mode. ThoughtSpot has bought a bunch of stuff. It's now valued at 4.5 billion. That was a $200 million deal. If you want to know more about that, we'll throw in the show notes, but we gotta kind of condense and scoot. So reserving time for this, Marianne, I'm starting to look back at Q2, trying to understand what happened in the second quarter and how bad or good it was, and then how that kind of compares with our expectations and anticipations 
going into it. And two of the ways that I've been thinking about this is how much capital is flowing into companies, startups that have a billion dollar valuation or greater, aka unicorns, and also what's going on in some previously hot categories. Because if you think about it, back in 2021, unicorns were raising money like it was candy. And at the same time, Web3 companies were incredibly hot. And since then, we've seen kind of a cooling of both. And I think we've seen a, a greater deceleration in investor interest in Web3, but unicorns really haven't come out unscathed. And before I run everyone through the numbers, I'm just kind of curious if, if anything here shocked you. No, no, of course not. In fact, I was actually surprised that Web3 funding was as high as it was, even though really? it was like way down. Yeah, I kind of I kind of was surprised. I mean, it was it was down a lot, but okay. Well, let, let's tell people what surprised you to the upside here, because I mean, that means your bar must have been on the ground, <laughs> pretty much. If you go back in time, Web three companies were raising lots of money at the peak. They were raising ten billion a quarter back in like Q four two thousand twenty one. Just 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 bonkers amounts of money. And this data is, by the way, via the Crunchbase Web three tracker, which is fantastic, and I recommend you check it out. In Q one of this year, that number had fallen to two billion dollars. And now, as we kind of get to the end here of Q2, it's looking like 1.5. So from peak to trough, in terms of quarterly investment into Web3, aka blockchain, aka crypto companies, we've seen roughly an 85% decline. In fact, it's actually a little bit more than that because the numbers were a little bit above 10 billion back in the day. So Marianne, uh, an 85% decline, better than you expected. <laughs> it sounds really, really bad when you, when you put it, it like that. It sounds rude. I mean, look. It's been a hard year for Web3. You know, the fact that it's still getting funding at all. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. For a different story, I was going back through a lot of corporate venture capital activity in the last basically six, eight months, looking for a theme that I was writing about, which was major corporate venture capital funds putting money into AI startups. And I just went through the Coinbase Ventures investment list as well. And they have decelerated their investment cadence as they stopped generating oodles of cash and began to lose money as their volumes went down. But they're still putting capital to work. And it's it's really interesting to see where they're putting the money to work, like zero knowledge proofs and, mm -hmm. and like just neat things inside the Web3 world that could come good if there is a dramatic like resurgence in mm -hmm. crypto related activity. And so it's interesting to see a company continue to put its money where its mouth is and right. keep this figure at one and a half billion versus going down to 0.5. You just wonder what that spark will be to ignite the next crypto wave, because we've seen, I don't know, four or five of these by now. This trough, though, does seem to be stickier and longer, I think, than prior ones. At least it feels that way. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's actually encouraging. You're right. that Coinbase is still funding companies out of its venture arm. I'm curious to how much of that one and a half billion came out of like corporate venture funds as opposed to just regular venture. Well, I don't, I don't think it's as much as you'd think because okay. there was going to be this big FTX fund. Eh. Coinbase has decelerated because they're conserving cash, which is eminently reasonable given their financial, I'll call it woes for now. Essentially, if you're a trading volume business and trading volume goes down, you have a bad time and that's where they are right now. But I think it's probably more like that big Andreessen four and a half billion dollar Web3 fund and mm -hmm. some of the other like tailored funds for Web3 versus corporate. Because what corporate player in the world of Web3 has too much cash right now? That's true. I mean, you know what? Look, I'm, I'm actually rooting for Web3. I'm not trying to say I'm like not down on the sector at all. Like I, I, I'm rooting for it, right? As long as things get worked out and regulatory stuff and, and all of that. 
So not trying to be negative. I'm impressed though, that there's still this number of dollars flowing into the space. I am curious, of course, to see how that continues throughout the rest of the year. I don't believe you. That's like when I tell Liza, when she drags me to a folk festival, I'm like, I'm not down on banjos and fiddles. I hope they do well. Far away from me. Oh, we're here. Okay. Well, you know, hey, I told you how I felt about NFTs. I was very vocal about that. Yes. And what drove really in large degree, the last crypto boom, the NFTs were the new thing. Previously before that, it was ICOs, which were very illegal. Turns out. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> NFT is slightly less illegal. <laughs> I, I just can't wait until the SEC drops a press release that's like, bored apes are securities. <laughs> oh my God. Don't get me started. All right. The other data point that I've been tracking as it relates to Q2's performance in the venture capital world is what's going on with the unicorn fundraising. Actually, again, Crunchbase has a great tracker for this. They have a dashboard of data that I check pretty much once a day because uh, I'm a huge dweeb. And we are seeing the the pace at which unicorns raise money go down. So to date this year, unicorns have raised $39.2 billion, according to Crunchbase. And that is a pace roughly of $80 million for the year if the current trends are maintained. And that compares Marianne relatively negatively compared to $131.2 billion raised by unicorns last year and a staggering $285 billion in 2021, when they raised more than a quarter trillion dollars. So my question is, on a mere $80 billion a year, can unicorns survive? Okay, so we were talking about companies that were existing, like already had reached unicorn status, right? Yeah, it's funding going into unicorns. Okay, yeah. I mean, not shocking, of course, right? I mean, a lot of these companies raised insane amounts of capital, especially in 2021. If they played their cards right, they would hopefully still have some of it. Probably not not many of them do. But I think most of those unicorns are probably desperately trying to defend the crazy valuations at which they raised back in 2021. Yeah. Another component to this is, you know, you said that a lot of these companies are probably low on money. I think there's kind of like a barbell effect here. And some unicorns have so much money they don't need to raise for a couple of mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm. And some are probably staring down the barrel of like nine months of cash and beginning to really worry because things haven't come back. Right. And I don't know how much there is kind of in between. I don't know if there's like a middle class unicorn right now. You know, it's kind of like top or bottom. One extreme or the other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like Chicago's weather. It's either 110 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Very little fall in Chicago and spring are both two weeks long each, just in case you didn't know. I love your analogies. I suffered through four of those in Chicago and that was sufficient. Chicago's lovely in the summer. I don't want to be there in the winter, but anyway, back to unicorns. Well, Chicago is a unicorn. No, I'm kidding. I'm very curious to see how far this number can go down this year because going from 285 billion to 131 is brutal. It's like a 50% reduction. But the dollar amount was still so high last year that it still felt like, all right, they're getting, what is that, like 11 figures of capital or something crazy? So this year, though, seeing another maybe 50-ish percent reduction if things slow down more, you begin to wonder how many companies are going to be able to eat off of that. And then, as my final corollary for this, if they cannot raise big checks from the private markets, do we see a lot of unicorns go, we'll just go public? Mm. Because IPOs back in the day were fundraising events. We forget this, but they used to be for that. I don't know. But if you're not doing well enough to attract more venture capital, do you really think it's a good idea to go public? Well, do you think Cava could have raised money at the price it now trades at on the public markets? Good point. I know that I'm taking three data points here and I'm 
drawing a picture with them. It's kind of like people are like, oh, that's, you know, Artemis's belt in the stars. And it's like three stars that don't even stand well, next to each other. No, it's a good point. And it's also giving, honestly, VCs too much credit, really. Because just because VCs don't want to put more money into a company doesn't mean that they're not worth investing in necessarily. True. I mean, every VC has their their miss list or their anti-portfolio, but we have also seen some data in the secondaries market. And I know we have to gloss over this because we're low on time, but showing that there is kind of a coming together of expectations mm-hmm. on the valuation side that could be very interesting. So something to keep an eye on. Miriam, we got to go. And next week I am on vacation. There'll be no equity Monday next week because I will be equity asleep in my bed. So... <laughs> Don't don't call. Don't email me. Don't Slack me. Don't Twitter DM me. No LinkedIn message. No email. I'm going to be offline just hanging out with the kid and sleeping. So I will be back. Leave Alex alone. Or call me if you need to. But I'm going to be off and then I will be back. And we have lots and lots of equity planning. We have some really killer interviews. I'm very excited about it. Look for that Lindley episode coming out soon. We also recently spoke to Kate Ambrose of the GPCA, and we have lots of cool stuff coming. But Marianne, before we let everyone go, we should remind them that equity will be opening Disrupt yeah. uh, this year in September. So if you want to come see us, pretend that we're television people, uh, you can come <laughs> on down. We'll be, I think, live on the Builder stage day one. First thing, there should be coffee. And if you want more of us in the intervening time period, Marianne, where can people find you on Twitter? My handle is Bay Area Writer, even though I'm no longer in the Bay Area. Yes, but you're always in the Bay Area in your heart, much like myself. And if you want to find me on the tweets, I am Alex on Twitter and Equity is Equity Pod. We'll talk to you all soon. Have a lovely long holiday weekend. Goodbye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.